Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, our recent meeting with one of Minnesota's favorite sons turns into a tribute. Bill Holm passed away on February 25th, just a few weeks after we recorded our interview with him about his summer home in Iceland and what he's learned about life at age 65. Beware the single truth. Inside it, anywhere on earth, is a loaded gun pointed straight at your head. Bill Holmes' friends called him a literary giant of the prairies and even the perfect Viking. As you'll hear in a moment, he operated in the tradition of his heroes, like Walt Whitman and Thoreau, to point out the perspective you gain from a little distance from your home. Later in the hour, with the Iditarod sled dog race just getting underway, we'll explore how Alaskans enjoy winter with Geo Beach. We'll start with Bill Holm, an American in Iceland, in just a moment. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. The sparse beauty of life in Iceland is up against its latest round of economic hard times. But American writer Bill Holm, like his Viking ancestors, knew how to thrive there. We're paying tribute today to Bill Holm. Bill passed away in Minnesota on February 25th, just a few weeks after we recorded this conversation. Some places on this planet just bring out the poet in you. There's some places where Americans tend to go, where they find a chance just to connect with nature, to connect with their roots, to open the window and see the world with a little more clarity. I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're joined by Bill Holm, who's the author of the Windows of Brimness, an American in Iceland. Bill Holm lives in Hofsos, Iceland, and part of the year in Minneota, Minnesota. And uh, Bill writes, After a while in the United States, it's just too much. Too much religion, not enough gods. Too much news, not enough wisdom. Too much entertainment, not enough beauty. Too much electricity, not enough light. Too many books, not enough readers. So I come here to this spare place. A little thinning and pruning is a good anodyne for the soul. We see more clearly when the noise is less, the objects fewer. Bill Holm, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great fun being here. So you're making me lonesome for Iceland just listening to that sentence. I, I look at the cover of your book, The Windows of Brimness, and I look out those shutters and out at that vast, sparsely populated wilderness, really, and I can imagine it. it really stokes your creative spirit in a certain way. What is it about Iceland that, that uh, you are so into? Well, it's a place unlike any others, and you're in the travel business and have been a number of places, so have I. If somebody asks me, uh, what is Iceland like? Why is it peculiar? I say, in order to answer that question, you really do have to see it, because there's no landscape on the planet quite like it. It's spare, it's austere, and instead of being able to uh, see, as one can see here in Edmonds, Washington, 10 or 12 feet on both sides of the road. You can see 50, 60 miles. And from the top of the glaciers, there's a place where you can see the ocean on three sides and all the glaciers in Iceland. Because of the absence of great vegetation and because of the clarity of the light, painters and photographers have for generations been madly in love with Iceland. I mean, they go wild when they see it. They never want to leave. You hear that about certain places in the west of France. That's where the Impressionist movement was born, in the light, they said. You know, it's just the, the cry of the painters was out of the studio and into the light. And you get there and, and you go, wow, I get it. Now, I've not been to Iceland, and you're talking about the light. What is it about the Arctic light? What is it about it? Well, Iceland, of course, has no industrial pollution, has an extraordinary clearness of air. And because it's so far north, there's no mist. There's no humidity hanging over things. Huh. It's as if the entire landscape is cut out of glass. So you think if somebody lived their life in a normal big city in America, they wouldn't even know what they're missing as far as clarity of light? I think you do not see that anywhere in America, maybe in the desert somewhere. Right. Uh, w.H. Auden, of course, was an Englishman, and he went to Iceland, and he has the great paragraph describing the light in Iceland. He described it as a kind of holy light, but that was Auden being romantic. But he's right, in a way, that there was no light like it anywhere on the planet. Now, if it's that clear from a light point of view, what is the sound of Iceland? Let me describe my little house. I bought a little house 50 feet from the sea on the north coast, facing the Arctic Ocean. 
All the windows face the sea, and they look west toward the United States, presumably, ultimately, Greenland. The sound is of the fjord sloshing in, of four or five kinds of seabirds crying in flocks, and sometimes of seals sloshing in the harbor. And uh, on the side of the house, a glacial river coming from 12 miles in the mountains, gurgling it rapidly over stones down to the sea. And so when you open the two windows, you get the sound of the two waters and the sound of the Icelandic birds. Not only the seabirds, but the whimbrels and the oyster catchers and the plovers, the melancholy hooting of the plovers. It's no wonder that Icelanders are poets. Somebody, some wag once went through Icelandic poetry and discovered that there were however many thousand poems about the golden plover, which is the harbinger of an Icelandic summer meadow. And my God, Icelanders fall in love to that stuff. And when the plover shows its black breast in the poem, you're going to have another romantic poem about uh, your Icelandic sweetie in the meadow and uh, the light. Your, your heritage is Icelandic. My grandparents came over from the old country. And, from and they're in Minnesota like a lot of Scandinavians. Yep. You've written a book based on your basically your meditations from this little perch on the desolate yep. fringe of Iceland. And you make these meditations, but I would imagine you also shuttle back annually to Minnesota and then to here. Is that important from your ability to, to have all of these observations to be able to go back to the relatively intense life of America and then back to your haven in Iceland? One of the things I've discovered as a writer, and I don't know if you find this in the travel business, is that you write best about places when you're far away looking at them with some detachment. I wrote a book about Minneota, one of my books, and about my hometown and about my past and about the emigrants and the farmers and the prairies. And I wrote most of it sitting on a deck overlooking Lake Washington and Mount Rainier and going out to eat, uh, you know, Ivers clam chowder and dicks down on Broadway, staying in Seattle and hiding from the Midwest. But you also see it more clearly somehow from elsewhere. I think in general, Americans who don't get away from America have a real time understanding what's going on in America today. Absolutely. When I read this introduction uh, in the United States, too much religion, not enough gods, too much news, not enough wisdom, too much entertainment, not enough beauty, too much electricity, not enough light, a lot of people would hear that and they'd go, what kind of curmudgeon is this? What's his problem? But your problem is you've been away from our country and you've been away from all the electricity and you've, you've sat on a corner of Iceland where you can hear the birds. And besides, I stole the better part of that paragraph. In the last two sentences, of it, it's almost certainly from Walt Whitman and Henry Thoreau, okay. the two saints in the church of Bill Holm. Good for you. Now, as a, an observer, you must see people coming into Iceland, like, where's the museum? What time can I catch the train? Can I have this and that? And you must think, that's not the way to do Iceland. No, but most of those tourists stay in Reykjavik. Right. I mean, there are two kinds of tourism. Uh, there's the urban tourism going for the quick tour and for nightlife in Reykjavik and Björk and Sigurdos and the rock bands and uh, getting drunk and making, bonding with youth, listening to the music which they prefer. Hmm. Is that a polite way to say That's that? That's a good way to put it, yeah. But then my joke for people who come to Iceland is I say, spend a week in Reykjavik. It's an interesting city and lots goes on there. It's an amazing place. There's real culture. There's lovely things to look at. You'll meet interesting people. But then you ought to spend a couple of weeks seeing Iceland. Ah, Okay. Because whatever Reykjavik is, it's not Iceland. No. It would be like coming to the United States and hanging around downtown New York City and assuming that you'd seen America. Or Dublin and Ireland, yeah. or Oslo and Norway. Icelanders used to make that mistake back when I was first visiting there, when I was a teacher there. My students all wanted to see America, but of course what they wanted to see was New York and the, the big city with the big buildings. And they wanted to go to California where they make films. And so I said, no, nah, what you want to do if you go to America is it's a long way away and it's going to cost you money. Buy yourself a car or rent some old car. The most spirited of them rented an old Cadillac. This is back in the 70s or in the 80s. And just drive through the Midwest and the lonelier parts of the West. And I'll give you the names of some of my eccentric friends and a few writers. Stop there. Spend a few days and have a good time. And my <laughs> house is empty. The whiskey is under the kitchen counter. The piano is in tune, and the door is always open. So go to Minneota and spend a couple of days and meet a few of my buddies and relatives 
And then you'll know a little something about America. And they got back, and they found the most disappointing, boring, plebeian, and to a European, irritating parts of America to be New York and Los Angeles. And they found the real fascination of America in little you know, towns in Montana and even finding Mormon towns in Utah that had an Icelander in them or finding you know, places in Minnesota uh, the ultimate climate to suffer in and finding the lives of elderly Scandinavian immigrant virgins hmm. and get it trying to, that's the excitement they found in America. I would imagine you're a friend of Garrison Keillor's. We've known each other for many and many a year, and uh, I'm a great admirer of Garrison's. Yes, we are. He fell in love with a Dane. And yep. you fell in love with a corner of Scandinavia, geographically. Yeah, and I fell in love with a Norwegian, too. That All right. Was, uh, Is there something about that culture? You guys are both poets from Minnesota. Yep. There's a lot of Scandinavian, and well, you're, it's your heritage. Are yeah. you Are you missing something in Minnesota that both of you would fall in love with a Scandinavian and actually relocate there and maintain your roots here, and in Garrison's case, actually realize it didn't work and come back. Nor did it, does it in my case. Right. I mean, I am the stubbornest Minnesotan you have ever met. Yeah. The food is awful. The climate is worse. Most of the conversation is dull, and my end of the state is even Republican. And people say, why in the but devil you go do you back. go on staying in Minnesota? One of my high school classmates said, you know, I would have said, in 1961, when we graduated, that the first person to get out and the last one to come back of this class would have been Bill Holm. What in the hell is he doing in Minneota? He's still there. I'm a stubborn man. I'm a stubborn man. There's something to be learned in America. There's something to be learned in your home. But I think you both you, you don't have to suffer for the rest of your life. No, that's why I go to Iceland. But and you get away and you get joy. a perspective from a distance, which is a beautiful thing. Now, as an American buying a little house called Brimness on a desolate corner of Iceland. People thought you were, did, were you welcomed into the community? Do you have to earn your place or, or have you always been the, the foreigner? The, the, the well, I'm, all, I'm foreigner. always the foreigner. But of course, the Icelanders are great believers in DNA. And they can't believe that somebody with perfect DNA like mine can be so stupid. On the other hand, you know, I've got a friend who's... Uh, Let's say he has the ethnic composition of our new president, beloved new president mm -hmm. in Iceland, but grew up in Iceland and speaks impeccable and perfect Icelandic. He's the Icelander. I'm not. Why? Because he speaks the language perfectly. There are such language huh. snobs. So a black immigrant who has learned the language would get more respect and uh welcome as part of the community. We would fit in. The people would eventually say, you know, old, uh, you know, whatever his name is, old Svenny, you know, oh. he's a good Icelander. And I'd say, but yeah. I, I, it looks <laughs> kind of black to me. Well, he's been here so long. You and know. you're 100% he's, Icelandic and you don't speak Icelandic. He say, why are we speaking English? Are you too damn stupid to speak? <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with Bill Holm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And we're looking out at the world from a humble cottage on the rugged coast of Iceland, a little house called Brimness. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. We're at 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com. 
We've got a fresh cup of coffee ready as author Bill Holm lets us in on what makes Iceland tick and how the view from his summer cottage in Iceland also illuminates his primary home in Minnesota. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Bill Holm, and Bill writes a book called The Windows of Brimness, an American in Iceland. We're talking about Iceland, and Iceland is, relatively speaking, ethnically pure. you got, what, 300,000 blonde people there. Oh, no, 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 not blonde. The Norwegians are much blonder. I was, before my, this tragedy happened to me, of getting to be 65, I was a flaming redhead who looked like an Irishman. Really? There are whole towns where everybody has black hair. I had an aunt in Minnesota, Aunt Olympia Vilborg. She used to tell stories and people would say, Oli, that's a great story. What is an Icelander? And Oli would roll her eyes. She was a flirt well into her 80s. And she'd say, well, you know, an Icelander is 40% Norwegian, 40% Irish, and 20% traveling salesman, depending on the neighborhood. And Icelanders hear that and they say, we think the salesman is a bit higher. <laughs> <laughs> is that actually true? There's a lot of Irish blood in, in Icelandic? Yep, they've done DNA checks, and the Celtic blood in Icelanders is very high. But my impression is that the country itself has less immigration than a lot of countries. I mean, But it had sailors who were shipwrecked on the Sores and nothing to do. Okay, that's historically, but I'm talking about yeah. today. Norway's bringing in a lot of Pakistan. Well, so are the Icelanders. Out. So there is a new emigration, a new generation of immigrants in Iceland, bringing uh, in spicy food and uh, different sorts of lifestyles. Well, they the have 16,000 poles, and good pickles hadn't arrived yet, but I was hopeful. I hope they don't go 16,000 poles? Yeah. Are these, uh, like in Ireland, there's 100,000 poles in Ireland providing cheap labor, basically. Yeah. See, there's 300,000 people in Iceland, 16,000 poles. That's an enormous community. That's huge. One of the jokes in Reykjavik is that if you take a bus in Reykjavik, you know, you won't need Icelandic, but either practice your Polish or speak English slowly and loudly. Now, is that is that a, that's a new trend in, in Iceland then? That is a new trend the last eight years since Iceland got so terrifically rich very suddenly. So suddenly they're too rich to take out their own garbage and oh, they yeah. will import people from Poland yeah. or whatever upcoming country that can work for less wages. There's always been, for the last 20 years, there's been a lively... Thai community of Icelanders who married Thai. Now, Thais. that's presented Norway, I know, with challenges to have some poor neighborhoods of immigrant laborers. Is Iceland dealing with any of the reality of having gastarbeiters uh, within their society? Uh, to the degree that the Reykjavik landlords have been, you know, swindling the immigrants, they've been living 16 to a tiny little apartment and paying too much for rent and doing what immigrants do, you know, saving their money, pooling their resources and trying to make their way in a new place. Do um, your basic mainstream Icelandic Joe Sixback type people welcome the immigrants or do they look at this as something that's threatening their society? Like everywhere, there would be multiple views on that. In general, they're welcoming. A little town, tiny little town north of me, uh, welcome, I mean, to the Kosovars. You know, when, the, yeah. when that was breaking down, they had... Icelandic teachers, they had apartments, they had, you know, little festivals, they had huh. all the signs in town lineated in, what, Serbian or Croatian or whatever. So this is adding Icelandic. a little spice to the community then, yeah, and seen in a positive light. And uh, there were uh, bunches of Palestinians who were settling in a town on the other side of the bay from Reykjavik, Akranes. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there was a politician in town who said, well, you know, these people don't fit in. And then there was a terrific outpouring from the locals who said, keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Nobody fits in and we're all immigrants in Iceland. Now you've got the reality of an economic collapse with your uh, financial yeah. crisis. Give us a little update on that, Bill. It happened very suddenly, but it, we should they should have seen it coming. I mean, one of the facts about Iceland that's peculiar... Because the entire scenery, country is going bankrupt or something, right? Because It the went bankrupt are... in one fell swoop. Wow. Iceland has for a thousand years been probably the poorest country in Europe. I mean, they are geniuses at poverty. And they created their gorgeous literature hmm. in conditions of unbelievable grinding poverty. But suddenly in this century, in the last century, they started to get a bit rich, first from fishing. But finally, the big push into mad prosperity, what the Icelanders call casino capitalism, happened with the deregulation of the banks about 10 years ago. Oh, it's a banking industry that, that was their false economy. 
Oh, it, yes. It wasn't oil like Norway. It oh, was no. It banking was banking like Switzerland. Sheerly, you know, the stuff, Wall Street. It was Offshore banking? Lehman Brothers, Shearson, uh, Goldman Sachs. Was it a haven for people to escape taxes or something like no, this? No. It was about 20 young venture capital cowboys who could go into banks in Europe. They found a way to raise money for collateral uh-huh. through people buying shares and investments and putting savings in, taking their collateral, borrowing money, and of course, you know the principle of capitalism. You never buy anything with your own money. You borrow the money. Of course not, yeah. You leverage and you sell bundles of securities and debt. You know, it's impossible. So perhaps this new um, financial reality is going to be good for poetry in the future. They had accumulated debt 12 times the size of the gross national product of the whole country. My goodness. I mean, because Iceland is so small, the weight of the debt simply sunk the economy. It went down. And, of course, all the foreign exchange reserves and whatever the government had was sacrificed. So Iceland is essentially completely bankrupt. So what does that mean when you walk down the streets of Reykjavik today? Well, if you've got foreign currency, they're very pleased to see you. Things have gotten a lot cheaper for tourists in Reykjavik. In some ways, it's very good for tourists. The bottom has dropped out of the kroner, and the anger of the Icelanders is not at the tourists. They know exactly the names of the people who sunk their own Hmm. economy. Small society, you could do that, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're related. I mean, it's 300,000 people and about eight families. Wow. We know the names of the people who sunk the American economy, but instead we think, well, just let them take one more, you know, one more large fee on the way out, and maybe they'll feel better. We wouldn't want them to, you know, be reduced to poverty suddenly. But anyway, so Iceland is in a state of crisis. But then again, that's always been in some way productive in Icelandic history, that at the darkest times of Icelandic history, and there have been some dark ones, the Icelanders find a way to so far have made Icelandic culture which hmm. is these remarkable books. I mean, the, So as a lover of Icelandic culture, you could actually see a silver lining in this. Back, I, got an email, I got an email from Iceland's best young writer. He's a guy named Girdur Eliasson. And he had translated some of my poems, and I'm an admirer of his. But Girdur, you know, was appalled by the kind of money madness in Iceland. Because he's a guy who loves his own country for its literature, for its culture, mm-hmm. for its stories, for its nature, mm-hmm. which was also being sold. So the email I got was, well, Bill, maybe there is a bright side to this dark economic news. Now we'll be writing better books. Hmm. Well. I don't know if that's a kind. Maybe that'll happen in America, too. I don't know. But when I think I'm about hopeful. the, when I think about, like you said, Iceland was one of the most impoverished countries in Europe. So was Ireland. And I think you could argue the most poetic cultures are also the poorest hmm. cultures. Ireland, Iceland. So was Norway. And Norway. I mean, 50% of Norway left from 1840 to 1910, your relatives, 50%. Wow. Speaking of tough times, all over the world, there's a restlessness among young people, and they want to go where the action is and so on. Is there any kind of a frustration among young people in Iceland? Are they depopulating the countryside, moving into Reykjavik? Are they actually getting an education and leaving the country altogether? Icelanders love Iceland. I mean, as long as there's something to do, they won't leave. They have to be driven out by poverty. Okay. Uh, That's why I'm not an Icelander, I suppose. And at the moment, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the jobs and the money have dried up. Most Icelanders don't want to leave. They're heartbroken at the thought Hmm. of going away, even to warm places. So emigration would only be the result of a really economic need, a necessity. But you know what? The same thing is true in Mexico and in Guatemala and in Panama. And in every other, and in China, that's true. and Japan, and every other country in the world, people don't leave because, let's go next door. We want to marry their daughters and take their jobs. They go because they're starving mm-hmm. and desperate, and they're driven out from something that means everything to them because it's either it's a last eat resort. or not eat. It's a last resort. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're joined by Bill Holm, and Bill Holm has written a book called The Windows of Brimness, An American in Iceland. We have Gregory on the line in Issaquah, Washington. Gregory, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, yeah. Bill. Hi. Hey, I had a question about um, Iceland. I'm intrigued with visiting the country and also was kind of curious about more rural trips versus city trips and what type of thing I might see in a one-week trip or a two-week trip. I absolutely recommend that. Airline tickets are a bit cheaper to Iceland. 
most of the flights, like from Minneapolis and from uh, in Canada, resume in April or early May. And that's probably the best time to go because you've got 24 hours of daylight. There's incredible time to travel. You can actually hitchhike in Iceland. It's absolutely safe to do it. People bicycle through Iceland. You could catch the bus and go from one place to another in Iceland if you don't want to rent a car. If you want to spend the money in renting a car, that gives you great freedom of seeing things. There's a good road all the way around the country. What I'd recommend is finding a couple of places that look interesting to you if you read about Iceland and just going there, staying for a few days, and having a look. Almost every farm in Iceland is a little hotel, a little bed and breakfast. It's called farmhouse holidays. So if you're popping along the road and you get tired, you could go in and the little hotels are clean, modestly priced. They'll make you dinner. And generally, English is all you need. I mean, there's Icelanders are marvelously multilingual, so you'd be able to have conversations with your hosts. It's a wonderful way to travel, just sort of ambling around in the countryside from farm to farm. Oh, wow. So there really is not a language barrier. I thought there might be. If you go to isolated farms in the country and you talk to old people, they'll probably understand English. But what most old people will do is get one of their children or their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren to come into the room, and the grandkid will say, like, man, you know, yeah, I talk English. Like, you know, it's like it's awesome language. Yeah, you know, where are you going? Where are you from, man? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. The younger generation. Kids have got better American accents than I do. So if you're in the countryside, you need a question answered. Just find somebody who doesn't have gray hair and you got it. So basically, uh, Gregory, check off all the famous sites and do the city of Reykjavik and then make sure you got time to choose a, a couple of places in the countryside where you can feel the tempo of the more traditional life. Is that what you're saying, Bill? Yeah. If you want to read my book, The Widows of Brimness, it describes one place that not a lot of tourists go, Skagafjordur. In my judgment, it's one of the most beautiful places in Iceland. What's it called again? Skagafjordur. But the town is Hafsos. Skagafjord. It's one of the fjords in the north of the country. All right. It's full of horse farms, magnificent place to go horse riding. It's got the highest ridge of mountains in North Iceland, just on the east side of it, and it's a marvelous place to go hiking. You can walk from one fjord to the next, you know, eight-hour walks. Just, you know, stroll over the mountains. You can go fishing in the fjord in a rowboat, and it's just throw a line out. You don't need to spend a lot of money. If you want to fish for salmon in an expensive river, bring about $2,000 a day. But that's not for the likes of us. That's for others. So the point is you can do that bed and breakfast, yep. hitchhiking kind of thing quite yep. reasonably in Iceland, no more expensive than uh, in other parts of Europe. Yep. Good luck, Gregory. All right, thank you. Yeah. Bye. Now, you're an American who loves poetry and music, and you feel in some ways more at home in Iceland. Are Icelandic people more poetic? Do they relate more to a poet, would you say, or is that too big of a generalization? That is not too big a generalization. They're very proud of their poets. The whole highway system is marked with the birthplace of poets. One place marked is the farm where a Lutheran minister in a snowy winter at the end of the 18th century translated Paradise Lost into Icelandic. And the Icelanders will all say, you know, Milton, he is very grand, but he is much better in Icelandic than in English. Nice. Now, does being connected with Icelandic culture, does it make you more of a minimalist? No, it opens the whole world to you. In the Middle Ages, the population of Iceland had a higher proportion of Latin speakers than any other country in Europe. And they had the oldest parliament, I think, in Europe, yep. didn't they? But you people ended that in 1261 for no. a while. But okay. I'm not holding you responsible the for Norwegian. that. The Norwegian. Yes. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Bill Holm, who just wrote a book called The Windows of Brimness, an American in Iceland. And we've been talking about how this culture is so accessible. There's, what, 300,000 people there. If there's some misdeeds going on in, in the financial world, well, everybody knows who the bad guy is. And I suppose if you want to get in touch with the leader of your country... You see him at a coffee shop. Are the big shot politicians and so on actually accessible to the people? Some of them are in danger at the moment because they deregulated the banks. But the president of Iceland, it's largely ceremonial, but it does have certain reserved powers. Their favorite president was the first woman president, Vigdís Finnbogadóttir, the first elected woman president of any country in the world. She was a single mother and a socialist. Oh, we should have had her in the States. When was that? When that she... was back in the 80s. Huh. And uh, that Vigdís was president. 
But now the president is a man named Oliver Ragnar Grimson, and he lives at an old manor farm on the outskirts of Reykjavik, which is the Icelandic White House. It's called Bessestadr. You can see Bessestadr from Reykjavik. It's lovely, got a little peninsula sticking out in the bay. If you want to go see the president, for instance, if you were curious about this, you would drive out to Bessestadr to a little peninsula called Alftanes, and you would take the turn marked to Bessestadr, and you would drive down the road to the little parking lot right across from the mansion, the farmhouse. And then you would get out of your car, and you would walk across the parking lot, you would ring the doorbell. I suppose it's theoretically possible that Oliver could come to the door, but generally, Margaret, or some woman who works for him, comes to the door, and she says, Hello, can we help you? And they say, well, you know, I was just passing by and I was hoping if Oliver had some time to have coffee, I'd like to see him for 10 minutes. Oh, he won't be until later this afternoon, but you can call back and we can, you know, we'll find a time to have coffee. And they go, thank you very much. Thank you. No police, no gates, no barriers. Whenever I think of the Patriot Act and Homeland Security, and the barriers now put up outside the embassy, even in Iceland, and the armed guards standing there with their rifles. And then I think of going to see the president of Iceland. Hmm. Goes everywhere himself in a private car. If he wanted, he can go downtown. I used to go birding at Alstenes when I was teaching in Iceland once with a friend of mine because it's a wonderful the coast around the peninsula. It's a marvelous place to see breeding birds. And so we're out there, you know, in our rubber boots, my next-door neighbor and I, and the president of Iceland gets on the porch and he waves and he says, boys, there's a wonderful nest down there. When you're done, come on in. We'll have a little sherry and, uh, and a snack. Must be a, it's sort of a... I think it's called civilization, isn't it? It's called a utopia. It's called a, a charming little corner of the world with the blessing of sparse population. Full of gossip, full of poverty, and at the moment broke as a church mouse. I once read a book called The Origins of Human Misery and Reflections on the Origins of Human Misery. And what they decided was the happiest, most content people on this planet live on a place where other people don't want to take. Maybe people don't know to take Iceland. It's living in a beautiful little corner with some beauties that aren't recognized from sunnier, warmer climes. Don't tell them that the weather isn't even Arctic. It's warmer <laughs> than New York City in the winter. Maybe that's your secret. You've named your place Iceland. Everybody's going to go to Greenland instead. Huh? Well, it was an Icelander who named Greenland, and it was the first real estate swindle. <laughs> but notice what became of the colony. They're all dead. That's right. We're warming up to the far, far north today on Travel with Rick Steves, where being nonconformist is pretty much the norm. We'll finish our visit with Bill Holm about Iceland in a moment, and then check in with Geo Beach at his home in Homer, Alaska. We'll be talking about some of the wintertime fun Alaskans enjoy, even in March. There's a forum for posting your thoughts on today's show in the radio section at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Bill Holm, who spends part of every year looking out the window of his cottage on the rugged coast of Iceland from a house called Brimness. His book, The Windows of Brimness, an American in Iceland. Bill, in Iceland, from your book, I gather, religion is weak and poetry is strong. That's a nice way of putting it. That's absolutely true. Now, what do you... Well, in, in some way, an Icelander would say, well, we are already religious. You know, we are all Luther, Lutheran. But, you know, we don't go so much, you know, at this maybe Christmas. But the same is true of the Norwegians, the Swedes, the Danes. On any good morning in Scandinavia, one half of one percent of the population are devoutly at their position worshiping. Most of them in Iceland are in the choir, where they receive a small stipend for service to the state. Because the Icelanders adore singing, and even people who have no interest in theology and not many religious opinions, if they love to sing tenor or alto, will join the choir. Then there's fierce loyalty to church organists and choir directors. Wow, so they'll go to church to make the music. Yep. And, of course, the priests in Iceland are among the most fascinating and interesting and thoughtful people in the country. Why? Well, 
The Icelanders use the church wisely, mostly. They use it for the passages of life. When you die, you need to be buried and you need to be memorialized and you need to be talked over. Uh-huh. And you need the church. In fact, the churches are too small for the funerals. They have them in their big gyms and arenas. Hmm. When you get married, usually after a couple of kids, you know, you decide that things are going to work, so you marry, uh, you need the church. If your life begins to go bad and you need someone intelligent and humane to talk to who's not going to preach at you and moralize at you, you very likely need the priest. If you need somebody in your neighborhood who's read a lot of books and speaks many foreign languages to have witty conversations with, you need the priest. She's available. About half the priests <laughs> in Iceland are women. I have many friends in the priesthood, and I count myself as sort of, you know, fly-by-night, seat-of-the-pants, singing Lutheran. So, so that, I don't believe much, but I believe in voice-leading. So the, the churches are empty. The priests are paid by... National yeah, taxes. Yeah, they're your servants. And they're respected. Oh, yes. Very interesting. Well, the good ones are respected. The idiots are not. But they make, uh, you know, that distinction. They say, oh, the guy over at so-and-so, he's a real bird brain. He's an old <laughs> Nazi. You want to stay away from him. But they say, oh, Raga, she is a wonderful woman, so humane. And she, you know, does the liturgy so beautifully. She sings very nicely, too. Do they call a Lutheran pastor a priest in, in Icelandic? You can't say to an Icelander, Mr. or Mrs. or President or Doctor. In the language, there's no way to do it. There are no titles. The President is Oliver. Huh. But there is a title for priests, and it's called Shira. I think it's the same word in Norwegian. It means sir. Huh. And you use it for priests. Shira Ragnheder, Shira Björgolver, Shira Gunnar, Shira Gunna. And, of course, I've given you two women's names and two men's names. Sur is for the women also. There's no gender. So it's the only title in the Icelandic language. Bill, living in Iceland, you look back at your home country, America, and you write about seeing isolation, loneliness, fear, lack of community, fundamentalism and violence versus secularism, pacifism, and love of nature. Talk to me about that for a minute. The windows of my little house 50 feet from the sea in the north look straight west. And that's where I write. I sit at a little table in front of the window in the sitting room looking straight west. And first I see the eight miles of Arctic fjord, Skagafjord. And then I see Tindestol, a wonderful big lump of a mountain, 4,000 feet that rears straight up from the sea. It's steep on the other side of the fjord. And then over that one, there, and there's another fjord. I know what that looks like. And then you go over that ridge of mountains and one more. And then you've got the Denmark Strait and then the Greenland Ice Cap and then Labrador and Quebec. And finally I see Lake Superior. And I just kind of cock my eye a little bit to the left and down past Minneapolis to Minneota. And I'm looking at my own life. I'm 65, which I never thought of as ancient, but it's old enough so I've now got Social Security or whatever. But I'm looking back at 40 years of my adult life in which I've been complaining about American politics, American history, American religiosity, American narrow-mindedness. But I've also been teaching school, and I've been giving poetry readings, and I've been reciting Walt Whitman and Henry Thoreau and Emerson and Mark Twain and Robert Bly and Fred Manfred and William Carlos Williams to any audience that I could find anywhere and saying, these are my country, not the president. Or I've been playing Scott Joplin for them or Jelly Roll Morton or Charles Ives hmm. and saying, this is the music of my country, not the military band. This is why I am an American and it gets through airport security every time because I carry it in a private place inside. If only Homeland Security knew the seditious stuff that I carry. Walt Whitman, imagine so I'm looking at my life in America, and I'm thinking what America could learn from Iceland. Iceland could also learn some things from the size and the decency and the rainy parts of America. The other thing travel saves us for, Americans frequently think they've got the truth. I mean, we are fundamentally a fundamentalist country, fundamentally speaking. We want literal, by God, truth, and we want one of them, the communist menace. 
Ever heard anything good about a communist? Did you ever talk to a terrorist and see what they had on their mind? In my first book, oh, it's not a first one, but an old book, was about China. And of course, I taught in China for a year and had wonderful adventures. God, I learned a lot on that trip. But I would listen, of course, to the Chinese honking horns in the trees every day, advertising Mao Zedong thought and encouraging people to think good thoughts for the future of the party and the four progressive goods and Mao Zedong thought and da-da-da-da-da-da. And now and again, I'd get in arguments with the class monitors in my classes who were the plants from the party. I liked a lot of them. They were my good buddies. But I thought of this sentence, and I still think of it fondly of all my old books. Beware the single truth. Inside it, anywhere on earth, is a loaded gun pointed straight at your head. A good comment to anybody who risks being fundamentalist in their outlook. And there's nothing like travel for telling you that there is no such thing as the single truth in religion, in politics, in human affairs, even in love. The truth is always a little more complicated and difficult than you thought it was. And looking at it from the next county or the next continent or the next odd place will, I think, make you a smarter person and make your community a better place to live in and make you a better neighbor. And help find those truths a little less self-evident and God-given. Bill Holm leads two tours a year to Iceland. If you'd like to learn more about that, billholm.com, B-I-L-L-H-O-L-M.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Bill Holm, author of The Windows of Brimness, an American in Iceland. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great pleasure being here. Hope to see you in Iceland sometime. I'm sure I would be yes. welcome. Come to Hopkins. <laughs> We're way up in Alaska, the state that stands alone. There's a dog race run from Anchorage in the Nome. And it's a grueling race with a lightning pace where the chilly winds do wail. Beneath the northern lights cross snow and the ice that's called the Iditarod Trail. Then when I get back to my home, hey, I can tell my tale. I did, I did, I did the Iditarod Trail. If you're feeling penned in down here in the lower 48, there's one great last frontier, and of course that is Alaska. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're joined by Geo Beach, a man who's got his own TV show on the History Channel about Alaska called Tougher in Alaska. He's a columnist for the Anchorage Daily News and lots more. He works as a medic, a crabber, a commercial fisherman, uh, lots of stuff. Geo, thanks for joining us. Rick, thanks for having me on the show. How are things in Alaska? Well, it would be white out if it weren't black and it's blowing by at about 30 knots. So a typical Alaska day most times of the year, I guess. Now, you're in Homer, right? I'm in Homer at the terminus of the North American highway system. If you drive north, turn left, and run out a road, you're about in my backyard. And you, you moved to Alaska 25 years ago from New England. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a swamp Yankee, and I landed in Alaska on winter solstice, the shortest day and longest night of the year. And there's <laughs> there's a lot of similarities between Maine and Alaska, starting with uh, moose living both of those states. But in many senses, Alaska is unto itself. It's a discontiguous figment of American imagination up here at the upper left-hand corner of American consciousness. Is Alaska welcoming to people that want to uh, find a place where they got a little elbow room? Yeah. You know, I do this show, Tougher in Alaska, and uh, there's a misconception that it's about big, mean people. And that's just not true. What's tougher in Alaska is the place itself. Everyday jobs throughout the rest of the country pose more challenges given the weather and geography up here. It's a big place with not that many people. And most folks all around the state are really happy to see and greet visitors. So uh, people shouldn't hesitate to come on up and, and give a visit. It helps to have a, a little preparation and not to wander off into the wild. But no, we, we, we're looking for more friends up here. Now, I was reading uh, in some of the work you've done about the Alaska Railroad. It, it takes you places you can't drive. Is that right? Yeah, the Alaska Railroad is great at any time of year. Off-season, there are fun trips. You can get on a train with Santa at around Christmas time. 
Coming up here towards spring break, you'll be able to get on a ski train with a oompa band and go to a ski opportunity that's not available by the road all year long. The Alaska Railroad takes you to places that are not accessible by highway, and that's advantageous. Alaska is breathtaking, and it's it's also eye-catching. And if you're up here on one of our twisty, turny, uh, vertiginous roads, and you're looking at the scenery, you can find yourself at the bottom of a 10-car pileup and hmm. have blocked the only road down to a small town. So that's another advantage of getting on the, the large observation cars on the Alaska Railroad. Truly, Alaska is a place that more than other states in the United States, more than many places I've been around the world, is susceptible to a variety of types of travel. There's a lot of Alaska that can only be seen from the water, and a lot of people like to cruise up the inside passage from uh, the lower 48 from Seattle or Canada. There are a lot of things that are best seen from the air, and flight seeing is a nice way to get out into the country. The railroad's just one that people forget about because, yeah. uh, like like Alaska, it's discontiguous. It's not attached hmm. to the Canadian railway system. I think if, if you wrote a guidebook to Alaska, the subtitle might be, It's Not Attached. <laughs> it's not attached. It's a disunited state, Rick. <laughs> wow. Hey, if you want uh, luxury in Alaska, you go to the Alieska Resort. Is that right? Alieska Resort in Girdwood, Alaska, about 45 minutes outside of Anchorage, is a true world-class resort. It's a four-diamond resort. It is a host to many uh, Olympic and world-class caliber alpine ski competitions and snowboarding competitions and extreme backcountry ski competitions. But as demanding as the vertical descent of the mountainside is, you luxuriate down at the bottom with a Japanese restaurant, with a sushi, a tremendous hot tub inside a plate glass window and watch everybody coming down through the snowflakes. There are, there are lots of opportunities throughout the summertime in Alaska, but uh, there are things at this time of year that are exceptional. And Girdwood, not just the skiing, but the skating, the dog mushing, the cross-country skiing, the snowshoeing are great things to do. So just because you have short days doesn't mean there's nothing to do in the off-season in Alaska, in other words. Now, Rick, you know that there are two <laughs> sides to every coin. If you have a short day, you have a long night. And Alaskans hey. are partiers. We don't go to sleep, but <laughs> just because it's dark, we find something to light up the night and party. Tougher in Alaska, Geo Beach. you got a website, www.geobeach.com, G-E-O-B-E-A-C-H. Geo, when you're thinking about Alaska, most people from down here in the lower 48 think of the Iditarod. That's the, the first weekend in March every year. Is that right? Yeah, the Iditarod commemorates the serum run where the children and really the entire population of the city of Nome was at risk from diphtheria. And a relay, like a um, Pony Express, uh, where a mailbag was passed from horse to horse, rider to rider, in this country, that was done by dog sleds. And the serum was uh, taken out from the railhead at Nanana out to Nome. It was a brilliant uh, rescue of an entire town on the edge of the continent that the world uh, followed in newspaper stories. And that's commemorated in the 1,049-mile uh, Iditarod Trail sled dog race that starts in Anchorage and ends in Nome. Everybody wants to go to Nome. The The Iron Dog folks go out there on snow machines and then back. Uh, Governor Palin's husband, Todd, is a multiple winner of that 2,000-mile uh, Iron Dog race. And then there are I did a skis and I did a something and I did a dumb thing in, in some cases. People out on bikes, on the skis, running. Everybody wants to get to Nome for some reason about this time of year. Uh, Gio, how, how long ago was that first I did a dog race? Well, when they ran the serum out to Nome was the 1920s. Wow. So it's a piece of history that's kept alive through, wow. the, um, through the sport. And moreover, the sport's just kind of interesting in that it truly is a partnership between the the mushers and the dogs. And, and dogs have had a unique history up here in Alaska. They really served the role that horses did in the American West in terms of helping people be able to survive in a very challenging climate. 
Now, with so much attention once a year, I, I just can't imagine there's an infrastructure to handle the crowds. I mean, people must inundate towns that have barely a hotel. How do they accommodate all the people for something like the Iditarod? Well, there's something called the Iditarod Air Force, which is a volunteer group of civil aviation pilots that are dropping in food and supplies all along the the trail. You mean for Uh, tourists that are watching? The folks that go to watch go mostly to the beginning in Anchorage and the end in Nome because in between, there's no real way to get there except by dog sled. (laughs) (laughs) So, So you just start or finish the race. Hey, when you spend a whole winter in Alaska, how do you deal with cabin fever? Dealing with cabin fever is mostly a matter of uh, finding something to celebrate. We celebrate everything that comes along here. We celebrate Hanukkah. We celebrate solstice. We celebrate Christmas, Orthodox Christmas, New Year's, Orthodox New Year's, whatever it is to light some lights and get through that darkness. The other thing is just to get outside. And that's another great place to find lights in the wintertime. The the northern lights, the aurora borealis in Alaska, is something that a summer visitor will rarely, if ever, see. Perhaps at the end of August, in a northern latitude, I've seen them. But otherwise, that's a treat for a brave, bold winter visitor. And uh, certainly, a, a lot of Japanese visitors come directly to Fairbanks and go out to China Hot Springs, about an hour outside of Fairbanks, where there are cold nights, hot springs, and beautiful aurora borealis northern light displays. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Geo Beach. Geo gives us an insight into the many dimensions of Alaska, winter as well as summer. Geo, thanks a lot for talking with us, and stay warm up there, okay? Rick, come on up, and don't wait for the light. I got a flashlight if you need it, if you want to come on up right now. We'll point it at something. Thanks, Geo. Uh, thanks, Rick. I used to be quite a rover, now it's home, home to Homer. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has links to archived audio of the show and special website-only features. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.